You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Those Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I have a, a special guest, uh, an author, a professor, somebody who has traveled the world. This is going to be an amazing, amazing interview. But I just want to first welcome Dr. Charles Bergman. Hey, Charles, how you doing? Hi, Chris. Thank you. I'm doing great. How are you? Doing amazing. A beautiful day here in New Zealand, which we're going to talk about. You've been down this part of the world. Uh, we're we're going to really talk a lot today about your your recent book, Every Penguin in the World. But before we jump into it, can you just kind of tell our listeners your background? You know, obviously you're a professor, so you've done quite a bit of education. Uh, but you know, if you give us your background, and then how did you get involved in animal conservation? Yeah, you bet. Um, <clears throat> I live in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. I live in the state of Washington on Puget Sound, just south of Seattle. It's actually the oldest incorporated village in the state. Uh, it's called Stillicum. Mm -hmm. I grew up in this part of the country, um, but uh, I went to college and got a PhD. In uh, this will be surprising to some of your listeners. Into uh, my PhD is in the English Renaissance. Right. Um, so, in other words. Um, I, well, I wrote a dissertation on 16th century poetics, and uh, it's a bit of a stretch to go from poets like Petrarch in the mm -hmm. Italian Renaissance to penguins, but I man yep. managed to make the jump, uh, and uh, I've never regretted any of it at all. But I still, I taught Shakespeare for 40 years uh, and never let that go, but developed a real passion for animals and a real dedication to them uh, and made a career out of spending time in their company, learning from them and writing about them and photographing them. It is. And that's, that's what I love about this and doing, you know, my research on you and reading your story. It's amazing to me that, you know, it's not, you're not a wildlife biologist, but you've written a few books that we're going to talk about. And it, I think it's an important point to make to our listeners. You don't need a degree in, in wildlife biology or any of these other specialties to, to get involved in animal conservation. So my question is, going from literature or Renaissance uh, English, where did that turn come for you in your life? Like you said, you know what, I, I really want to start getting more involved in researching and, and studying and being involved, I guess, especially doing research for your books in animal conservation. Well, um, I suppose the way to describe the start is that uh, when I was in graduate school studying for my PhD exams, I did a lot of reading, a lot, a lot of reading, a very kind of old school kind of English, you know, poetry from the 16th and earlier centuries. And I would take breaks and... Uh, I would go to a nearby wildflower garden and I would watch watch birds actually. And then, and then I got an opportunity to do a little writing about it. So it was just this sort of fun thing that I enjoyed doing. I've always loved the outdoors and found myself uh, really attracted to, to 
I, my memories are of spring migrants, warblers coming through and rose-breasted grosbeaks and beautiful birds like that. And um, I got a chance to do some writing about that in graduate school for a local magazine. And then when I started as a, as a young assistant professor at the, at the university where I taught, Pacific Lutheran University, um, I got involved with the Audubon Society and had an opportunity it was an amazing opportunity with a very well-known wildlife photographer to propose some articles to Audubon magazine, National Geographic magazine, and Smithsonian. And we got all three of them. Uh, it was an amazing summer. And so I spent it traveling to these really wild places doing research. And I just never looked back. I just loved being in the field. I loved hanging out with people who were researchers. And you know, I brought writing skills to the game, which were very helpful. The truth is that most scientists, a lot of scientists can write, but most of them are not really trained to write for popular presses or large audiences. And so there's a real opportunity. And I also brought an interest in the history of ideas, the history of biology, the history of animals, the history of philosophy, and which is a really important part of how we relate to the natural world and what I would call the poetics of our relationship, why we love it, how we're attracted to beauty, what makes us connected to it, and what, what problems have kept us from realizing our real connections to the wildlife and animals, and how we need to think about the way we think about creatures and the way we appreciate them and the way we interact with them. It's, in other words, that the problems we face in the natural world are not just biological or geological problems. They are, in fact, really problems of how we think and feel about the world and our separations from it. So um, once I, you know, got the opportunity to write about wolves in Alaska for National Geographic, you know, and spent time one summer watching wolves come and go from the den, actually crawled in a wolf den, that was it. I just never looked back. <laughs> you make a great point because, you know, as a, a, a scientist and, and written plenty of scientific articles, making that jump to science communication is a big thing. And that's why I think my, my podcast partner, Angie, and I, you know, we both uh, doing this podcast, it, it, we really try to, we always try to just, you know, be able to communicate scientific ideas so the general public can consume it. So, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point there. Yeah, it it. It's fascinating. Again, you know, somebody with an English degree, and I, I used to tell this to my students all the time, don't let that define you. You know, if, if you want to get involved with, with certain parts of conservation or animals, you, you know, don't feel like you have to have certain, check off certain boxes. So, so I guess that's, that's an important takeaway for a lot of our listeners. Well, perhaps I could make an additional point. So um, related to what you were just saying. So I got a job as an assistant professor. This was in the... Um, well, a while ago, 1980s, early 80s. And um, I loved, I, I was already at the point where I love nature, I love bird watching. And I decided we had a one month course in the middle of the year, a January course. And I decided to take students with me to northern Minnesota for a month and live in cabins that were wood stove heated, no showers. We would jump through holes in the ice. To, to bathe and shower, camped out overnight in the middle of a Minnesota winter, stuff like that. And we read all the Leopold and uh, Annie Dillard and while, you know, what people were writing about nature. Um, there was no, th this was not a field in, in, in uh, literary studies at the time at all. I was just following something that I really liked. Well, it now is a field. It's called eco-criticism and it's a huge field, but I was doing something that I enjoyed doing and wound up being a bit of a pioneer in an academic field that didn't exist. And so what I would tell my students is, you know, if you are passionate about something, find a way to make it part of your life mm -hmm. and let it lead you. Follow what that passion has to tell you about what you really love and what you really think is important and work it into your life. And I've, I'm, I've been very grateful that I've been able to do that. I was taught at a university that let me do that, that didn't pigeonhole me and cubbyhole me. Uh, and so that was a model. By the end of my career, I was taking students to places like Uganda and Antarctica. We were the first university in the world to have undergraduates studying in, in, on the, in a class on the Antarctic continent. So oh. there, you, you just have to, 
you can just make things happen mm -hmm. if you really want to. Um, just before I retired, I took students many times to the Galapagos Islands, and we had a new biology teacher on campus who one of the students I was going to take to, with me to the islands was in this biology professor's class. And the professor asked her one day uh, outside of class, what in the world is this English professor doing taking <laughs> students to the Galapagos Islands? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said, well, he just basically does what he wants to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. was... Uh, take the flippant quality out of it a little bit, but that's really what it amounts to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's amazing. Well, it, that leads me into talking about every penguin in the world. And when when your team first contacted me, I thought it was fascinating. We love penguins. We've covered a couple species on the podcast so far. And can you just tell the listeners what the book's about? Sure. Um, the book is... My, something my wife and I traveled together to do. Uh, it is an attempt to see all 18 species of the world's penguins in the wild. Uh, and I can say it, we, we fulfilled the attempt. We actually resisted. We, we love penguins. We started, we began by just traveling to visit cool places that where we could see penguins and we managed to accumulate a few species. But when we thought about the idea of trying to see all 18, we actually really resisted the idea for quite a while because, mm -hmm. well, it's hard. A lot of them are in very remote places. Right. Very hard to get to, not serviced by planes or, you know, regular route routing for commercial ships of any kind. Uh, and, and frankly, at times dangerous. Uh, the Southern Ocean can be a, <laughs> a bit of a wake-me-up call. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it'll, it'll be plenty of opportunities to contemplate your mortality, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but we just were so compelled by the penguins that we decided we had to do it. And their, their conservation story was so important that we decided we had to do it. And the truth of the matter is the penguins just sort of led us on that journey as well. It, it was, became an obsession that was just delightful for us and something we could share together and couldn't really resist. Oh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And so first, I guess uh, first question is, how many countries did you visit? I mean, you know, I guess the islands too, some of the remote islands we're going to talk about. But, you know, how many countries did you visit? visit and how long did it take you to, to see all 18? Well, I think I think it's eight countries, which is really not that many, maybe nine. It depends on how you count, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, we wound up on the Cape Verde Islands. I think that's a separate country. <laughs> I'm not even sure yeah. on one trip. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So something like eight or nine. But they're all in the Southern Hemisphere. And the real challenge for penguins is not so much the countries, except for a couple instances. It's that, as you mentioned, there, there are several species that are found only in very particular little archipelagos in the oceans. And um, the Antipodes Islands, which you mentioned, is a good example. And it's about 500 miles off the South Island of New Zealand to the east. You know, it and the Bounty Islands, which it's a, kind of a paired with, they're really just rocks in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. know. <laughs> they're not the bounties, especially, but there's, you know, people don't live there. Mm -hmm. You're forbidden actually to even go ashore there for good reason. Um, and um, and that is, they're they're not unlike other situations. They're just really, really a challenge to get to. Um, and those, so we wound. I would say. You know, Antarctica isn't even a country. You don't even count that, but that's like in central in all this, right? right, right, right <laughs> so right. I think it was probably about 10 visits to Antarctica, two visits to Macquarie Island, <clears throat> two visits to Campbell, two visits to Snares, one visit to Antipodes and uh, the Bounties and, and, uh, and Chatham Island. We went to Chatham Island as well. Um, and then <clears throat> places like the Falklands and South Georgia Island and Trist, uh, Tristan de Cunha Islands. Those are <clears throat> those are some of the really challenging ones. 
Oh, I bet. I bet. And how, how long did it take you? How, you know, how many years? <laughs> I would imagine you didn't do this over months. Well, from the first sighting of, no, it wasn't months. From yeah, the yeah. first sighting of, um, of a Galapagos penguin, which is my first penguin. It's ironic. The first penguin was on the equator, not in. Not I know. In, <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Not just, south. Yeah. Which is sort of an important little fact about some of the misconceptions we have about penguins. But it was from first sighting to to the book coming now, or to the book being contracted and writing it was seventeen years. Oh wow! But it was probably about fourteen of actual travel. Um. And I mean, it's a little, you could do it much quicker, right. but we had full-time jobs and, um, and that sort of thing. And we didn't really get down to business until about species number 10. Um, and up until then, we, it, it was, the, kind of building the list was a bit incidental, but once we hit 10, we decided we were going to go for it. And then, right. then we got a little more efficient about it then. Right, right, right. I, and I have a good birder friend, Jesse Golden, here in New Zealand, and and I'm, I'm understanding bird watching more. You know, checking <laughs> off. You you know, you want to check these birds off your list, right? So to see every penguin in the world in the wild is just amazing. I I've got to ask about the Antipodes because I believe this is episode forty nine, and we're at episode two ten now, two eleven. So we, we covered the Antipodes, and it was the Million Dollar Mouse Project. Fascinating interview about how they're trying to eliminate rodents on these remote islands that are devastating to native native birds, really, and, and insect populations, you know, plants, things like that. So it was a fascinating thing. Listening to Theo talk about how he got to the Antipodes, it was the New Zealand Navy, <laughs> the government was involved. How did you get to these remote places? That's like, how did you get there? Well, the truth is, there's an actual New Zealand company that took us there called Heritage Expeditions. And they have one of their itineraries is the subantarctic islands of New Zealand. And so we flew on an old, I think it was like a DC-3 from uh, Christchurch to Chatham Island. And then boarded a boat and um, did some bird watching around Chatham Island, and then headed for the Bounty Islands, and that's how we got there. Wow! Um, wow! And then off to the off to the the uh, Antipodes, um, and so the way we did it is that we would take the ship, and then we would arrive, say, at the Bounties, and we would offload, really get off the boat, and get into Zodiacs, those big black kind of inflatable, you know, they're, they're like spare tires in a boat, huge and supposedly unsinkable. And we, we would ride those across the ocean to get to the, the, the little islands. The, and, and in the case of the bounties and the snares and other islands like that, where you're not allowed to go ashore unless you have special, special permitting, um, like to rid, rid the island of mice, uh, you, we would just go along the shoreline and uh, see them that way. That's, uh, that's, that's fascinating. So uh, can I ask this, how bad did you get seasick or did you, <laughs> I remember the, it's, it's, you said the Southern ocean is treacherous at times. Well, it is treacherous at times. I never, I never, ever get seasick. I just, ne no matter how bad the okay. seas are, it doesn't affect me. Uh, I mean, there, are, there are a lot of people that get violently seasick. I mean, we, when we, to get to the emperor penguins, we took a Russian icebreaker from Ushuaia to, Snow Hill Island in the Weddell Sea, and we were in a gale storm the entire time. Normally, it's like a 40-hour trip across the Drake, <clears throat> the 600 miles of the Drake Passage. It took us 72 hours because we were in 25-foot waves oh. the entire time. And the icebreakers don't have keels. They need to be flat bottom because they slide up on top of ice and smash it from above. Mm -hmm. So the boat would roll 35 degrees to one side and then 35 degrees to the other side. And that's like halfway to the surface of the ocean. And it's, you, you inevitably wonder, well, how far does this roll before it actually capsizes? Uh, but the Russians didn't seem worried about it at all. And if they didn't worry about it, I wasn't going to worry about it. <laughs> I'd be dying. I'd be dying. I heard that. I was like, uh, I would be, oh, yeah, I would be green. I, I just... People were. You, you would have had a lot of company. People were very seasick. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, uh, oh, wow, that's amazing. So I, I guess, you know, this is, you personally funded all this, right? Like traveling over the world over 
15, you know, 17 years. I funded some of it. Um, I also did a lot of the traveling by leading tours. Okay. Uh, and that helped a lot, uh, various kinds. And then I got advances for a couple magazine articles. And then I got an advance on the book, all okay. of which helped. Yeah. Yeah. I've offset some of it, offset some of it. That, that's amazing, Charles. So what have you learned traveling the world, photographing 18 species of penguins, seeing them in the wild, all of these remote places? I, I imagine that life experience is just so invaluable. Well, what have I learned? Um, in general, um, I've learned that it's an extraordinary world that we live in. I mean, I got to see, I've gotten to see through penguins some of the most incredible locations. Macquarie Island, I just adore. Um, Campbell Island, which does, people don't talk about Campbell that much, even in New Zealand when we would be there. I mean, I know people are proud of it, but I love Campbell Island. I adore Campbell Island. And what I love about it are the albatrosses that nest there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So there are these terrific, I mean, just terrific wonders. And New Zealand maybe is one of the things I learned the most. <laughs> I, I love, we, Susan and I really love New Zealand. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I've even thought about well, we're not that thrilled about the way things have been going in the United States, so yeah. I put it that way. <laughs> well, look where I'm at. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. definitely, definitely had a you know an attraction for 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 New Zealand and for travel in general. And you know, I guess one of the things I've learned is that uh, when it comes to wildlife, this is a terrific time in the history of the world to be interested in wildlife for a variety of reasons, one of which is that probably animals have never been more loved in, than they are now, at the same time that they've never been more endangered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, there have been episodes of extinction. Let me rephrase that. We are in a, the sixth kind of extinction episode, yeah, mass yeah. extinction episode. So it's kind of this paradox, really. There are these huge constituencies and reasons to love, and you can see wildlife in ways now that would have been very difficult before and that's terrific and yet you're aware that the, while you're looking at them i have very serious questions about how much of you know about, well about the nature of the future of our planet and uh, it, it's a fragile and unfortunately in a lot of ways failing planet largely because people just are not taking the, the threats seriously so that's um that's the good and the bad. And then there's the ugly. And the ugly, when it comes to animals, I think it's just sort of a lot, a lot of the ways we outright treat them, particularly in industrial farming and in wildlife trafficking and a number of ways like that. I, it, it is. It is. It is. Again, that's what drives us with this podcast and getting the information out and sharing the message. I just read it was one of President Biden's latest appointments. Appointments. I think it was, I don't know, NASA or somebody, it was, I didn't read fully into it yet. And they were talking about with climate change, the damage is already done. They're pro projecting we're going to lose half the species on earth already. It, 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 it's catastrophic what's going on. And even if we took aggressive action today to, to curb climate change, the damage is already done. Like we've, we've already raised emissions too high. So we're going to lose a lot of biodiversity, which is scary. So again, that's why we do this. And, and, and an English professor that has devoted a lot of his energy and time writing about the natural world. That's why, you know, we, we throw you in the category we call conservation heroes because you're, you're making a difference in your own way, which is amazing. It's just amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Well, um, in my lifetime, uh, Half the world's population of animals, well, the, the world's population of animals has been reduced by half. It's a, you know, and it's not like people aren't warning us about the problems. You just have to wonder about this. Um, climate change, we know what's going on. It's not like people don't know. You can't claim ignorance. It's a kind of willful disregard, which has been shocking to me over over the last few decades, I suppose you could say, but we've seen it in full force with 
at least in the United States, this kind of myopic approach to the pandemic and the refusal to just open your eyes and do what needs to be done. So, one, but one hopes that we can, we can come to terms with what we need to do more quickly than we have so far, but that we wake up and actually take action. And uh, you have to have hope. Yeah, you do. You do. You do. You absolutely do. And then, you know, we always try to do conservation optimism and, you know, try to tell the good stories with the truth that's going on out there. So um, it is sobering. It is sobering for sure. Okay. So back to the book, you're traveling the world, you're looking at all these, these penguin species. Do you have any favorite stories about some of these? I guess you've already told some, you know, 25 foot swells, but any other stories with, with penguins that, you know, you'd like to tell the listeners? Thank you for asking. Um, well, when I wrote, when I proposed Every Penguin in the World to a publisher, I described it as, um, it's not a book, it's not really a book of scientific writing, though. I, I described it as fact-friendly, story-driven, and photo-rich. Um, so I really wanted to tell stories, and I wanted those stories to be as compelling as possible and to incorporate information, but not be driven by the information, if you know what I mean. So yes, I, stories are really important to me. And um, partly because if I can just give a little kind of English professor's plug for stories, science is really good at telling us what things are. I mean, that's its job. You know, an animal is this and it can, it can be quantified, for example. What stories do is tell us how we feel about things. It tells us what they mean to us. And I think that's a crucial dimension of the conservation challenge that we face is to understand more fully why we should feel, why, why we should care and why we shouldn't feel more fully something, really affection and love for me, for the planet. And so that's the kind of thing I really wanted to, to do. So I'll give you an example of an early story that, was a complete surprise to me. I was on South Georgia Island, which is about eight or 900 miles off the Argentine coast, really spectacularly beautiful island, small, mountainous, with these broad plains of shoreline on which penguins gather, king penguins among the most noticeable. They're big and they're just gorgeous penguins, the ones with the really bright orange highlights on them. Mm-hmm. And we'd gotten off early, the ship early, and taken Zodiacs ashore. We were on St. Andrews Bay. And there was this broad plain with water coming down and snowy mountains in the background, blue sky in the morning, which was cool. And groups of penguins sitting around the, this little pool. And they were, re, they were reflected in the pool. And it was just a beautiful scene, a kind of beautiful wild beauty, which I decided to photograph. And I got on my stomach and was crawling on my elbows to get closer to the penguins, which was, a, you know, a way to approach without scaring them. And while I was lying there, I realized that something was pecking at my boots. And I turned around and that king penguin was <laughs> pecking, pecking at the boots, trying to figure out, I guess, what I was. And he yeah. kind of worked his way up my body. He was pulling at my pant legs and then at my jacket. And pretty soon he was standing right beside my face and they're, you know, three feet tall. Yeah. And I looked up at him and he looked down at me, you know, for just a second, that, that sharp, they have a sharp dagger kind of like beak. Right, right. I, oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, this could, this, I hope he's friendly. Anyway, he, well, he wasn't interested in pecking me. Instead, he, you know, pointed his beak toward that blue sky and started calling. And they have this really hoarse kind of kazoo like sound, which, in the big colonies is just like a, an enormous racket. And so he did that several times and his chest was pumping and it's really, I won't try to imitate it, but it's very hoarse, and very throaty. And then he just looked at me. And the kind of amazing thing for me is that I, I knew that he was saying something to me. And not only did I know he was saying something to me, I knew exactly what it was and because it was science. King penguins nest in these enormous colonies, up to 250,000 pairs in a, in a single beach. And they're loud and they don't have nests. Um, so the babies aren't anchored anywhere. So like when both adults have to go off to sea, 
the chicks wander around. And when the adults come back, they've got to find their babies. Well, how do they do it? They do it by their calls. Apparently, each one of these 250,000 pairs and their chicks have their own individual identities encoded in their call. Their call is an identity marker. So what is this penguin saying to me? He's saying to me, this is who I am. And when one of them does that call, usually it will start a whole chorus of them making that call. And they're all answering, well, this is who I am. And so when he's looking at me, he's expecting me to tell him who I am. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a little mini kind of, I wouldn't call it an identity crisis, but really it's not just who I am, but who am I in relation to this penguin? And in a lot of ways, my career has been an attempt to answer exactly that question. Who are we on this planet? And what is our place in relation to the other animals that we share it with? And this book is really my attempt at an answer to that question to the king penguin. It's my crafting of an answer. Um, I did, by the way, call back to him, but he wasn't very impressed. But that was a very, that was, that was when I knew pretty early on that there was a, there was a calling here for me. And that's another way to think about this, that we are being called by the creatures. They are calling to us to make an accounting of ourselves. And it's time to really answer that call. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So, I can throw this question in there. I can imagine you, this huge colony, how loud is it? And what's the smell like? That many birds in one place. I can imagine the yeah. wind's blowing the right way. Yeah. yeah, everybody comments on the smell. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, there's poop all over the beach. Uh, and so it's loud and smelly and active and busy. And it's it's a kind of overwhelm. The early experiences for anybody when you go ashore in those kind of circumstances, is it's just kind of overwhelming. It's just... Uh, I think, in fact, uh, the size of those colonies is—it's it, humbling and it—it's oh, yeah. moving. Um, and the smell never bothered me very much. And in fact, because I'm—I'm I'm down the beach crawling around, I always wind up going back to my room covered in penguin poop. <laughs> um, but I guess that's sort of the price you pay. But. It's it, what part of what I like about these one of these huge penguin colonies is it's a glimpse of we don't really have a very good uh, kind of concept of animal abundance anymore. We've kind of eliminated, as I said, half the world's population of animals in my lifetime. And so we live with beasts that are in, in a diminished state. And we've come to think of the diminished beast as the real beast. We have no real idea of just how magnificent these experiences can be until you walk in one of those moments. And then you add to it that they're not afraid of you, that they, and they're not frightened of you. They're not uh, terrified and they don't run away. But in fact, we'll even come up to you and peck at your clothes and call to you. It's really deeply moving. Oh, yeah. And, and to imagine that being gone forever, you know, with extinction and yeah, it just, it's just got to hit you right in the stomach. Like, okay, I'm going to do what I can. It's just, uh, yep, yep, yep. No, uh, I, I mean, can you comment briefly? Because one of the species we covered was the African penguin and one of our good friends, Stephanie Arney has, uh, launched a program to help them build these artificial nests because, of what's happened, you know, removing all the guano on these islands and stuff. 
do you remember visiting down there and seeing them because they are you know they're they're on a, a really fast trajectory towards extinction and i just didn't know if you had any comments about them specifically yeah um well, Susan and I actually volunteered with Earthwatch Expeditions. <clears throat> Do you know about Earthwatch Expeditions? You can, you can kind of pay to join a scientific research project and spend 10 days, in our case, two, two weeks on the island, 10 days actually working with the researchers to help them. And we did that on Robben Island with the African penguins. And it was an amazing experience. And yes, they are building nest boxes there and the guano's gone. And so they often are now nesting in just scrapes on top of the, the, uh, the soil. <clears throat> but um, there were in the 1930s an estimated 1,500,000 African penguins from on these little outer islands from Namibia around to the Eastern Cape. And they've lost over 95% of those birds in the last century, and they're still plunging. The guy who runs the research project on them, Richard Shirley, actually is afraid that they'll go extinct by 2050, that that's a real possibility. Um, and, you know, we spent 10 days there and we were regularly finding undernourished chicks, and that's part of the problem. They just aren't getting enough food right now. And there are complicated reasons for that, which I could go into if you'd like. Yeah, we did touch upon it. Like, you know, is the, uh, the, that Southern Ocean current has really shifted farther offshore. Yeah, exactly. So they were, yeah, exactly. so they were having trouble finding food. The Bengala right? current. So they have to swim okay. farther to get food for their babies. And they're located, you know, they, they're called, they're, they're not a migratory bird. And so they live off these particular islands. And that just means they have farther and farther to go. Right. And they're not getting as much food as they need. And it was very moving, them. though, to, yeah. to, to be working with them on Robben Island which is, you know, most people know Robben Island, not for penguins, but for the prison on that island that housed Nelson Mandela and five other, 1,500 other right. political prisoners who opposed uh, apartheid. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, it's just, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is a species in crisis. That was a, a fascinating episode to cover. And then we, you know, Stephanie Arney, shared a lot of what she was doing to help them. It's just, yeah. Ugh. So we, we talked about the 25 foot waves. <laughs> was, were there any other parts of your travels you felt were a little bit dangerous? You're like, why am I doing this? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I never had a kind of why we're doing this. We were free, you know, part of the, part of the point of traveling to see penguins is that it's not like you're going to the beaches of Hawaii or Florida uh, to sunbathe and you know our family and friends were like you're going where exactly and they didn't know i mean we would tell them well we're going to um we're going to go to macquarie island and <laughs> it's like what and you know you get there and it's like cold and rainy sometimes and you're going and frequently uncomfortable and you're going well why are we doing this exactly yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, but the penguins always were kind of a recompense for that but uh, here's a story of a, where it was a really exciting moment. We had been ashore again on South Georgia Island, and I had actually just watched an elephant seal be born. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which was kind of an amazing moment. And um, and the expedition leader came up and said we had to hustle up and get into the Zodiacs and get out of there because the sea had come up. The waves had gotten big. And there was a bar we had to cross, and a bar means a spot where the, the waves break. Um, as it comes ashore and as they wave, the break gets bigger and bigger, it gets harder and harder to go over them. Uh, and they had managed to get all other, but two Zodiacs and everybody back to the ship. And so we were in the second to the last Zodiac going back. And, um, you know, you've got several of us sitting in this Zodiac and all of us with camera gear. And the, the expedition leader says, well, we're going to go over the bar, so I'm going to have to gun it to get over it. And then I have to cut the engine so the front end drops back down. Um, and, you know, these Zodiacs have a reputation for being unsinkable. And you're going, I guess we're going <laughs> to find that. out. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so he, he gunned it. We actually went airborne um, in the Zodiac, oh, which Hang was on. pretty exhilarating. But then we came back down, and that was that was great. We made it. It was a little, little iffy, a little scary, but we made it. The last boat had a different driver 
who was not nearly as experienced. And they, they had, we watched them after we got across the bar and the driver there had the rest of the guides. So all, none of, none of us who were like, you know, guests on the ship were in that Zodiac, only the guides. Well, he didn't know about the, once you gun it, you have to let off the throttle. So the front end comes down. They went vertical about oh, seven gosh. feet into the air, oh, pure vertical. The guides were hanging off the chains that are in the, it was really, I thought they were going to go over, but they in fact came straight back down and it flipped onto its, you know, <laughs> up flipped onto the right side and everybody was fine and nothing was lost. But that was really, really something. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> just, okay. Yeah. When and, you get to these remote places, it's just, yeah. Well, um, and there's one more story I can tell you yeah. briefly. It's a yeah, New yeah. Zealand story. It's about the South Island and the Fjordland penguin. Um, I'll give you the kind of brief version of it. It had been raining down there when we got there. The Fjordland penguin le you know, nests from about, I guess, July, August, up through early December. And by mid-December, by early December even, December 10th, in fact, we were told they're gone. And so we were coming down. We thought we wanted to see the Fjordland. So we made, the, made a point of going over there. But it had been raining for several days. The rivers were all high. Uh, so they couldn't take us to see the penguins. Well, finally, uh, the kind of rain let up for a morning. We managed to get down to the penguins. The guide left us there. And while he was gone for the rest of the day, it started raining really hard. And we had to cross a particular river to get out. And the river had swollen really deeply. And so what had been up to our ankles in the morning when we arrived was by late afternoon when we left up over my, th my waist. And we had to walk through this. So the long and the short of it is actually... We, my wife and I both got knocked down in the current, you know, right next to the Tasman Sea. We're looking like, that's really bad news. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I don't really want to have to, like, swim to Tasmania. No, uh, no, no. Uh, so we went all the way under. And oh, wow. luckily, we got shoved up against the far side of the beach on a, under a sandbar. And we were disoriented and kind of shaken, but yeah. we were fine. And the camera gear even was fine. It didn't. It went under as well, but it didn't get. Didn't get. It didn't penetrate the pack. Oh, good. Happily. Oh, it's the power of water. Water mm. is so powerful. Like people. Yeah, it's really understand. powerful. It, was, it is. It is. So, besides New Zealand, which is obviously a beautiful country, I, I love it down here. Uh, do you have any other favorite places that you visited that you just you fondly remember? Well, I've mentioned a couple of them already. Um, well, first of all, I speak Spanish, so I loved all the stuff I did in, in South America. Um, yeah. And that's really, uh, I just feel quite at home there. And uh, I love Tierra del Fuego, and I love Argentina a lot. And I've spent a lot of time in Ecuador, and I've been to the Galapagos a lot of times, and so I love those places. But I have to say, um, Macquarie Island and South Georgia Island are probably my two favorite places in the world that I've been to. They're just so beautiful and so remote. And, you know, they're, they're like almost in Antarctica, but not, not really. So they're, they've got a lot of penguins, but they've got albatrosses. I love that about, I, albatrosses are one of the, they're, they're one of the big surprises in this whole project. And I think, I just think they're the most, they're up there with penguins is one of the most wonderful things in the world. Uh, that that should be your, is that your next book? You're going to do all the species of albatross? <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm tempted. I'm tempted. It's about the oh. same number, 21 or 22. Right, right. Yeah, we recently covered them last year and they're just, they are just an amazing bird. I'm I'm, I'm really itching to, to get down to the South Island and, and go see them. Uh, when I can or go, uh, actually my friend, like I said, Jesse, I mentioned him. He went on an albatross boat, I think last weekend. I haven't talked to him yet um, to see if he saw any, but yeah, they, they do run off New Zealand where you can go see them. But fascinating birds. Well, if you ever I, get a chance, let me just make a plug for Campbell Island and the nesting Southern Royal albatrosses and the nesting light mantle city albatrosses. Yeah, that would unbelievable. Yeah. Southern Royal albatrosses, 13 and a plus foot wingspan. It's just those wings are just, oh, uh, you know, they're amazing. Yeah. They're it's just incredible. What, you know, the way they evolved to, to be 
perfect masters of those winds that they have to live in. Oh, it is. It is. Oh, they're, they're beautiful birds. Uh, so traveling the world, seeing all these species, do you have any takeaway messages? I mean, you've talked a lot about conservation, but any others that, that you've kind of learned about or the plight of these many penguin species that maybe you haven't brought up? Um, yeah, I do have a couple takeaway messages, I suppose. Uh, the main one is that you, nobody has to do everything. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And uh, that's what I would encourage people to do. So perhaps, um, perhaps you're not able to afford, a, let's say, a, a hybrid vehicle, but you can you can cut back on your the meat intake you have, and meat is one of the big kind of drivers of climate change. You can you don't even have to eliminate it; just reduce it. Uh, in some measure. I think that would be, if I could just get people to do anything, it would be to begin to do one thing. And we have, we can identify things that people can do. So it's not like you have to invent this. There are lists. And in fact, I have, I make, we have a list in every penguin in the world. If you want to make a difference, here are a set of ways you can do it. Choose one, start with, you know, just one thing and do something. I don't think individual no, even if all of us did something without concerted government and industrial corporate action, we, that, those are really required. But we, we all need to make some effort. And I think if we begin to begin there and get more and more people to do that, we can build the kind of constituency we need that will drive government change. Right. Yeah, it's it's political will, right? And that starts with people and an individual choice, and and like you said, doing uh, your own part. You know, uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful tips. Now, reading the book, you did work with people that are doing some conservation. Did you want to highlight any of them? Some of the work they're doing out there in the field. Um, well, yeah, the Global Penguin Society is a terrific organization. Uh, run by a guy whose last name I can't pronounce. It's an Italianate name in Argentina, as you may know that a lot of Italians came. Anyway, I can't, I, but the Global Penguin Society and the um, Eco Ecosystem Sentinels run by Dee Borsma, penguin biologist at the University of Washington is another great organization. And Richard Shirley working to save, uh, is working with penguins in South Africa through Earthwatch Expedition. And I guess I really want to make a plug for uh, rehabilitation centers, especially in this case, marine seabird rehabilitation centers. There's one in Cape Town called Sandcob. I don't know of the names of them in New Zealand, but I'm sure there must be some. Uh, and you can volunteer at these places or at zoos, which is another place you can make some effort to interact with the animals and, and do something good on their behalf. Absolutely. Absolutely. All uh, amazing people. Like, and that's what's heartening. It, it's, it's not just authors like yourself who, again, you, you're making a difference whether you know it or not. You are. Absolutely. It's all these other heroes out there that are fighting day in, day out for these species. And it, it, it's amazing that, that they're out there and, and, and they're, they're not household names where, where they, they should be, you know. <laughs> now, Jump into to your other books. You, you've written some other books about the natural world. And one that really caught my eye was Wild Echoes, where you highlight some of the, the most endangered species in North America. Can you just briefly talk about what that book is and what you learned? Yeah, it's, it was my first book. Uh, and I chose 10 different species that were endangered in North America. And I made a point of visiting them all in the field and then writing about those experiences. And it was one of the most, I, I love the Penguin book uh, and it's very dear to me. And I love Wild Echoes, which was also dear to me, but very sim differently dear, I guess you could say. Um, I was kind of angry when I wrote it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite reviews says that it's compelling even in its darkest moments. I mean, I was really, the more the more deeply I got into the whole phenomenon of endangerment, the more 
kind of upset I was. And the, the, of course, there's information about all the different animals. I included uh, the gray wolf, California condor, dusky seaside sparrow, uh, Puerto Rican parrot, black-footed ferret, spotted owl, and I'm leaving a couple things off. But anyway, you get the idea. Um, and what I began to realize is that that, that that these endangered species speak to us in some way about who we are. There's some kind of lack that we have with regard to what an animal is that we just simply have to solve. That the problem wasn't really entirely a biological problem, but a conceptual problem. Why do we construct animals with this notion that they're separate from us, they're different from us, and that we have the right to do with them as we please. Uh, and so this became really for me uh, an occasion to rethink them. And so the title refers to the, the idea that they're fading away on us, right? They're just echoes of what they once were, but also that they are echoes of our own minds, that our own kind of diminished minds are busy creating a world that has diminished its own natural wonders and natural richness and um yeah i yeah, yeah. really 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 love that book yeah 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 it, it, it looks interesting i definitely like to get a copy and so i flew with the last wild california clonders before they were i was in a little plane with 18 foot wingspan as they were there were six left in the wild uh-huh and uh-huh. um you know they had like a 10-foot wingspan, which is almost as big as the plane I was in. Right, right, and right. It was just amazing to be up in the sky with them like that. And I crawled into a wolf den with little baby wolves in it in Alaska. And uh, with dusky seaside sparrows, uh, there were six. I spent time in the field with a guy named Herb Kale who helped look for them. They were the uh, a terrible storm came through. They were, all they could find after the storm were six tusky seaside sparrows left, and they were all male. So they were captured and put in, of all places, Disney World. And and well, you're from Florida, so you may know a little bit about this. But you know, then another storm. I when you're looking at them, you're looking at extinction. I guess that's right, really right. The, yeah. the point. Yeah. You just know that's what's going to happen. There's no other yeah. other way out. So um, yeah, these were these were amazing experiences that really opened my eyes to some of the intellectual challenges we face as well as, um, I guess you could say, ways, sort of biological projects. Right. Uh, it's, you know, when you're looking at the last of a species, like the, you know, the one that's in the press quite a bit is the, the last two female northern white rhinos. And it, you look at them and you're like, that's it. I mean, it took millions of years of evolution to get that version and, and they're getting wiped out at a phenomenal rate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the other one I wanted to highlight real quick was red Delta fighting for life at the end of the Colorado river. And, and from, from a kid that grew up in California, knowing the Colorado river, can you just briefly talk about what that book was about and what you learned? Yeah. It's about water. Water wars. And, um, I learned an enormous amount about water and what, how we waste it. And um, for example, um, the Marriott Inn in Palm Springs uses an ungodly amount of water in its courtyards to entertain guests as they come in and to have mist nets and mists of water for a little flock of flamingos that they keep for the guests. And if you go across the, the border with Mexico, there's a tribe called the Cucupa, which means the people of the water, and they have no water at all. And so this became, for me, a, a kind of in, investigation of water inequities, really, and its relationship to environmental problems. Um, there's a little, there's a marsh called the Cienega, just on the other side of the Mexican border from Yuma, Arizona, just 20 miles from it. Um, there's a group of people that live there and when water comes down the Colorado river, it gets used over and over and over again. And it hits the, the Yuma area. It gets used one last time. And then 
there was no place else for it to go. So they just channeled this used water, which has got now a certain kind of saline content to it. They just dumped it in Mexico. Well, it turns out that this was a kind of, it created a brackish marsh. And so in the middle of this desert caused by water coming from the United States that's, that's brackish, is this kind of natural oasis of an enormous size with several endangered species in it. It was one of those kind of great accidents. And part of the, of course, problem is that as technology improved, the United States wanted to recapture, wanted to keep that water and use it again, but then it would be removing it from this, this marsh. So it became also this defense of the marsh and the people who lived on this marsh and what they wanted to do with it. For example, when we dumped the water in Mexico, nobody asked the people if they wanted it. <laughs> we just, just kind of, oh, American arrogance with regard to some of this stuff that was really yeah. disturbing to me. Yeah. Yeah. We just, uh, highlighted, you know, uh, we, we had, a, uh, a executive director of Shoal and talking about the freshwater biodiversity crisis that we're facing. And yeah, I just thought it was interesting that you had a book on that. So, uh, it's amazing stuff. I, a couple more questions, Charles, one I like to ask of all my guests now is, you know, especially it'd be interesting to get your take on this you know, through all your travels around the world, you know, documenting some of this stuff and, you know, your writing, in your opinion, what's our greatest threat to biodiversity on our planet? Um, well, I think the one that has moved up to the, the one that's really changed in the last 25, 30 years, as I've been working on these sorts of things is climate change because it's so pervasive and so invisible. So everywhere, it's everywhere, but un, un, but nowhere to be seen. And it's clearly having just huge effects on species after species after species. And so that's pretty sobering. And then the other one that I would say is the commodification of animals. Um, and that includes both legal forms of commodification and illegal forms, wildlife trafficking as well. I've done a lot of research on wildlife trafficking in Latin America, especially, but also in Africa. And um, it's just a scourge. And the legal forms of it, like trophy hunting uh, and industrial farming and that sort of thing, they're just they're just terrible. And these are forms of these are kind of behaviors. The commodification of animals is a way of thinking about an animal that just turns it from a being into an object. And I think that's the kind of thinking that I think just has to, we have got to change when we think about animals. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. And, and climate change is definitely yeah. a theme. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and then the trafficking, obviously, it's... Well, you uh, know, yeah. krill, and as you probably know, krill are really important in yeah. in yeah. the life cycle of emperor penguins, humpback whales, and krill is now being harvested in great quantities in the Southern Ocean, and there's still quite a bit of controversy about about it and how much it how much you can take out of the krill and not collapse the, the uh, ecosystem there. But these are ecosystems built on krill. And, and now ships can vacuum krill out of the sea. They don't even have to scoop it. They're just vacuuming it right out. It's, it, uh, yeah, yeah. And that, I, I know talking to a couple of researchers, the exploitation of the Southern Oceans is now becoming a, a, a big issue. You know, oil and gas exploration, other things, and, and it's affecting... Yeah, multiple species. Well, well, I, I just thank you so much for coming on. I just want to know where can our listeners find every penguin in the world or some of your other books? Um, on Amazon.com. Okay, easy. <laughs> I'm not. I'm sure that I don't know. It is in Amazon.com.nz. Yeah, there is every yeah. country. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. that's the easy place to get it. Um, and. Uh, and I appreciate it if people took a look. 
Yeah. And then do you have any social media? I, I will link your, your bio uh, to our show notes where people can go and click on it. And I know that lists some of your stuff, but anywhere else where people can find you? Sure. I'm on, I have a website, charlesbergman.com. Um, love to have you visit. I do a blog every couple of weeks on wildlife. And if people, if people sign up for the blog, you get a free downloadable poster with each of the 18 species of penguins pictured on it. And one cool weird fact about each penguin. <laughs> For example, the erect crested penguin in the Antipodes in the Bounty Islands is the only penguin that can raise and lower its crest. It's the only one that has control of its crest. Oh yeah. Oh wow, okay. Okay, well yeah, we'll definitely link that. I will definitely have that linked on the show notes where people can go there and sign up for the blog. That's amazing. But Thank you so much for spending the last hour with us. Dr. Charles Bergman, the book again, Every Penguin in the World. Fascinating, fascinating story and insight. Thank you so much for being on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chris. And I hope to see you in Auckland someday. Absolutely. If you come to New Zealand, let me know. We will go have dinner. Absolutely. I, I, would, I would be fascinated to pick your brain. Fantastic. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.